Good afternoon. My name is Ian Brzezinski. I'm a senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Policy. And I get the honor of moderating this panel, Thawing Ice, Rising Tensions, New, Ge New Geopolitics, and Security Threats in the Arctic. Well, as made clear in the last panel, and I'd also point out last week at the, at the Atlantic Council Conference on, the, on this realm, thawing ice and new technology has made thousands of square miles increasingly accessible in the Arctic. Accessible to the Arctic nations, to non-Arctic nations, non-state actors, including businesses and other organizations. This new space and its vast natural resources, its oil reserves, its gas reserves, its rich fishing uh, territories, its minerals, uh, and the impact that the environment up there, the changing environment up there, has on the globe as a whole, makes this a realm that's a pretty good catalyst for international collaboration. And we got a big dose of that uh, yesterday or, or, or last week, uh, and actually this, this afternoon went from Amy Pope, about all the great things that the Arctic Council has been driving forward, what President Obama and his team has been driving forward. I'm biased, my brother is part, part, part of that team. But at the same time, we have to recognize that rich resources, rapid change, opening space can also be a real recipe for geopolitical confrontation and collision. Look at some of the catalysts that, that are out there. Territorial claims by Norway, Russia, Canada, Denmark, United States. Differences over how to define or treat inter, uh, important seaways, uh, be it the national or international seaways. Seaways that if they become more accessible could dramatically change the flow of global commerce. Think about the new actors that are up there. China, India, Japan, interestingly also Poland, Singapore. And then looming south of the Arctic, I was gonna say looming under the Arctic, but that's a different connotation. Looming south of the Arctic is growing tension between Russia and the West. Now clearly the Arctic is in a realm where there is lots of cooperation going on. One of the few areas of constructive engagement between the West, between the United States and Russia. But the Arctic is also the self realm or the safe realm for Russian ballistic missile submarines. It's a positioning point for Russia potentially in a major conflict with the West to shut off our Atlantic sea lines of communication. Look at the militarization of the region, the new, the new bases, the old bases that are being reanimated up there. And I've just read in today's paper that the Deputy Minister of Defense, Dmitry Bulgakov, stated today, the infrastructure preparedness on all the Arctic islands has already allowed units there to assume combat duty. That's the attitude the Russians are bringing, or Putin is bringing to the Arctic. There are also upcoming decisions. In the coming years, perhaps the next three to five years, the UN Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf will be making decisions on the different territorial claims in that region. There will be some winners, there will be some losers, and between now and then there may be efforts to preordain or, or shape those decisions. So our panel today is going to assess the geopolitical currents defining the Arctic today and tomorrow how they're gonna affect our US interests, and what near long-term actions the United States government should take to protect and promote those, those interests. As Amy Pope put at the end of her statement, to protect the peace. And they'll be asked also, 
to what role should international organizations play in this changing environment, be it the Arctic Council or other organizations, perhaps NATO. So we have a great panel with us. We have Dr. Janine Davidson right next to me, the Undersecretary in the Navy. She's de facto the number two. She runs everything that the Secretary does, uh, management, budgets, policy, perhaps the toughest, the integration, the Marines and the, and, and the, and the Navy. <laughs> two great or, or organizations. She brings a lot of experience to this job, which she's had now for six months. Uh, she was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy and Plans. It's a big force posture responsibility. She served as the Director of Stability Operations. And really relevant to this uh, conversation, she served as a Senior Advisor to SAC Yor, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. In the center, we have General Joe Ralston from the Air Force. He spent 40 year, 37 years in the Air Force. Uh, I think his last, <laughs> his last position, when I got, first got to know him, when he, when he was SAC Yor and commander of UCOM. Uh, he also served as commander of Alaskan Command. In his military tenure, career, he's had combat missions, counterterrorism missions, humanitarian missions in the Balkans, the Mediterranean, Africa, Iraq, and Afghanistan. It's a storied career. But what really makes him an expert in our subject today is that he lives outside of Anchorage. <laughs> Admiral James Loy, Jim Loy, uh, Coast Guard. A former secretary or acting secretary of Homeland Security, served for two years in 2003, three years, 2003 to five, as a deputy U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security. He served as the administrator, as the administrator of the Transportation Security Administration. He was commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. And when we often, sometimes I make the mistake of when I think about the Coast Guard, I think about keeping our, our seaway safe, our waters clean, fighting drugs and thugs. We often forget they're also ready to stand for combat duty. And he, in fact, did that as Coast Guard officer in Vietnam. And so we thank you for that. So I'm going to turn to our speakers. We're going to give them each a moment to kind of share their perspectives on this. And then we'll have a moderated discussion. Janine. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me here. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming and sticking it out to this is the last panel, right? Almost. <laughs> Almost. OK. Second to last. Um, well, as Ian said, I'm the Undersecretary of the Navy, and so I'd like to provide a bit of an operational perspective and let, give you sort of a sense of how the military is thinking about its role as the region changes, and in particular, the, the Navy. Um, obviously, the Arctic region is uh, largely a maritime environment. There's a lot of water up there. It's not very uh, navigable yet. Um, but the melting sea ice in the Arctic is definitely going to have some security implications because, uh, as we know, Conflict happens where the people are. And when more people are there, we can probably expect conflict. But conflict doesn't always mean war. Um, it can mean debate over resources and, and, and such like that. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. And I know that M Amy did as well. Um, I mean, I'd like to sort of emphasize at the get-go that we in the Pentagon and in the Navy still see the Arctic as a low threat environment compared to things that are going on in the rest of the world. And we have global responsibilities. That doesn't mean that we're not you know, keeping an eye on things and that we're not thinking about how things are going to be change, uh, changing over time there. Um, but you know, as, as Ian said, nations, and including Russia, have demonstrated a desire to cooperate um, over issues in, in the Arctic and to resolve their disputes peacefully so far. So I'm sure as Amy discussed this morning or earlier today, uh, the US end state, as we call it, or our objectives are for a secure and stable region where US national interests are safeguarded, the US homeland is defended, and nations work cooperatively to address challenges. 
We also want to focus on the environment, and you know, people will be looking to um, extract and leverage the resources that are there, and we want that to happen in a sustainable way and in a way that helps protect the environment. And as I'll talk about a little bit, um, the Navy has a lot of experience in um, thinking about the environment and helping people protect it. So the military's part of this uh, overall government strategy is to focus on the security parts of this, to support safety, to promote promote defense cooperation, and to be prepared to respond in case there are challenges, um, disasters, contingencies, um, to operate with our partners and allies, but also to be prepared to do so solo if we need to. Um, being prepared for conflict or challenges is also what you have to do in order to deter, as Ian and I have discussed in many other forums. Um, so the Navy's missions uh, in support of these interests include the things that they include just about everywhere else. Freedom navigation, defense support to civil authorities, uh, including the US Coast Guard, search and rescue operations. So basically, the Navy's task is to simply do what the Navy does everywhere else. Promote freedom of navigation, safety, stability, prevent conflict, and to do it all with partners while respecting the environment. Except it's not that simple, because this is the Arctic, and the Arctic uh, is not a normal place. We must do all this sort of normal stuff on the ice, under the ice, over the ice in very harsh conditions. So let me sort of drop anchor a little bit and talk about what that, what that looks like. That's what they say in the Navy. Um, it's a <laughs> unique, harsh, and pretty delicate environment. It kind of stinks up there to operate. Um, Alaska's a nice place to live, but you're not all the way up. <laughs> um, Ice actually begins to form on the submarines if they stay up there too long before they go back down. I mean, it's like within not that much time. Um, there was a 60 Minutes episode about ISEX, which I'll talk about, and you can actually see that sort of on the submarine. It's also hard just to get to the Arctic and to get around in the Arctic. Um, harsh weather conditions affect the communications. We have things like ionic disturbances and geo geomagnetic storms. Um, there's limited satellite coverage in that part of the world, 65 degrees above. Um, and terrestrial communication apparatus are limited, so it's hard to, it's hard to communicate. It's hard to navigate. There, you don't have the navigation aids up there like you do down here. I remember even in, the, in the, one of my last flights, when I was in the Air Force in the C-17, we flew up to Greenland, which isn't even as far as what we're talking about now. And you know, back then, we didn't have GPS on our airplanes. <laughs> and um, so we, we had to do what people are going to have to start doing again, is like focus on using inertial navigation and dead reckoning. And we were kind of like, what's going to happen? Because you know, we had never been up that far before. So you, you know, as we continue to venture forward and get that experience, that's part of um, it's part of learning how to operate in this environment, but it's not easy. It's hard to get around. It's also exacerbated, especially for the Navy, by the fact that it's not mapped very well. Okay, I mean, you can't map ice, and it moves all around anyway. But under the ice, we don't, we we haven't we haven't done the exploration there yet. So that's all starting to happen as well. And um, there's a lot of stuff under the water that you can bump into. It turns out I'm learning this in the Navy. Any submariners in here? No? Yeah. So, right? Am I right? Stuff under there. Right, um, not charted very well, not, so not necessarily a very safe environment. So all this means it's hard, it's hard to get there, it's hard to operate, it's far away. 
So one of our primary missions that we think about for the Navy, and it's mostly a Coast Guard mission, but we expect to be in support, is um, humanitarian relief disaster uh, assistance. So, you know, as the ice starts to melt and as more people want to go up there, uh, you have um, merchant ships or cruise ships, the chances for people to get in trouble and to need help is definitely going to increase. And so we're thinking about that. And how do you operate? Well, it's hard to get there. If there's a disaster, you need to get there quickly, which means you need to be positioned forward. But that's hard to do because how do you, you know, you, you can't build up there very easily. <clears throat> it's, it's not very, you can't build very many months out of the year. And you can't build on the ice. The ice moves, the ice melts. So that's, that's hard to do as well. So um, ice camps are kind of sketchy also, as we see with, with ISEX. The, you know, the ice can crack right underneath your, your camp, right, when you're not even expecting it. So all this means that the Navy will need to adapt in order to operate in this changing um, environment. It is changing. People will be going there, and the Navy will be part of that. Um, we, the Navy, will need to improve our operational capabilities, our expertise, our capacity, our ability to extend our reach into that region in order to promote new kinds of competencies. Um, interoperability of a different kind with our interagency partners, including the Coast Guard, um, and our international partners. We're going to need to uh, do better with our co communications technologies, with our satellite coverage and our navigational aids. These are kinds of investments that are going to need to be made. Not all of them are military or Navy, but um, we'll definitely need to be cooperating for that. And just basic things like cold weather gear and equipment, charts and maps and things that, that, that the military needs to be thinking about as we, as we operate there more. We'll continue to train and exercise with our allies and partners, um, doing everything we do everywhere else, only in a worse environment. Um, we have all kinds of um, exercises already that we, that we do, that we've been doing, and we're doing more of them. Um, some of them in, with our European partners, like Baltops, require some of these capabilities and skill sets. But then sometimes we'll just go up to the Arctic and practice, like ISEX, which is a really cool um, uh, thing that we do. The Navy has an Arctic roadmap. It just got republished in 2014. It emphasizes, this is great Pentagon language, low-cost, long-lead activities that position the Navy to meet future demands through informed, focused, and deliberate investments to match capability and capacity to future demands, safeguarding enduring national interests. This is the kind of language they use in the Pentagon all the time. <laughs> so, so what the heck does this mean? So it means from an investment standpoint that we will make adjustments over time and that we'll do it with our normal processes, which actually is, are not so bad if, in, philosophically, meaning who do we need to task to be thinking about how to operate more um, competently in the Arctic? So we have UCOM, where uh, the good general used to um, lead, and NORTHCOM, and also, uh, we have things like the uh, Arctic Submarine Laboratory. All of these folks, so the, Arc the UCOM and NORTHCOM will be thinking about what sorts of contingencies they need to be prepared for. And Arctic Submarine Laboratory was thinking about like, how do you operate more, um, more cleverly in the Arctic. The Submarine Laboratory is actually kind of cool. It's in San Diego. Go figure. It's warm down there. Um, it's not actually new. It started in 1969. Um, you know, the Navy did its first ice dive in 1947. Um, in 1958, it did its first transpolar crossing, and it was its first use of inertial navigation up there. And in 1959 was when it did its first submarine break through the ice. Um, so we've been doing this for a long time. 
Um, but it is changing, and uh, I think it will become a more challenging environment as more people um, start to go up there. Um, so today's Navy provides capability and presence primarily actually through its undersea capability. So the focus for now is on submarines. But as the ice starts to break more in the years to come, we'll be thinking about what that means for our surface fleet as well. So the key for now, what we're really focusing on is learning, um, increasing our expertise, training exercise, support, also important, support to scientific research and discovery. So we partner with science, scientists in, um, pr to promote some of these cooperative behavior. A cool example of all of this is ISEX, which we just had in March. The, the week I started my job um, in March, my boss, Secretary Mavis, was under the ice for five days on a submarine at ISEX. I'm like, hey, where's Secretary Mavis? Well, he won't be back. He's like literally under the ice and not able to communicate, right? Um, 60 Minutes was up there with him, so when he popped out of the ice, they were there. So you can go online and watch that 60 Minutes episode and watch him pop out of the, out of the submarine as, as it comes out of the ice. But ISEX is a pretty cool thing because it's designed to mostly test our um, capabilities and our readiness um, in, for the submarine fleets. But we also go up there with scientists and um, we have unmanned vehicles that we put into the um, subsurface to, to map some of the ocean floor so we can get more um, navigational information and, ge and um, geography information, weather information. So it's a great opportunity to, to just keep learning. Um, and that's run by the sub lab out of San Diego. Um, the other thing that people have sort of less knowledge about in the Navy is that, well, we do a lot of focus on our energy and on the environment. And um, one of the last things I was going to mention um, is the, the focus on making sure that as we move into the Arctic, we do so in a clean way. Because, you, you know, right now we use a lot of diesel up in that, in that part of the world. But in this last ISEX, we, we um, experimented with a lot more wind energy, clean wind energy. And so I think that is another area um, where you're going to see the military, the Navy in particular, trying to operate a lot more. So in sum, the Navy's going to keep doing what the Navy does everywhere in the world, or only they're going to do it in the Arctic, and it's going to be harder. Thank you, Janine. That's a, that's a, a pretty powerful statement about how the Navy is beginning to grapple with some of the changes that are coming its way, driven by the receding ice cap. Thank you. Sure. Joe? Ian, thank you very much. And I'm asking my colleagues to make a handout here that I'll talk to in just a minute. But while they're doing that, I'd like to go back and correct the record from the first panel that we listened to today. Uh, I'd let it be known that I have never, ever yelled at Admiral Larson. He, he was <laughs> such a competent and likable officer. How could that possibly be true? But Don, good to be with you here again today. Um, I want to give you some reasons for why. Secretary uh, uh, Davidson has talked about the Navy. And so let me talk to you a little bit about air and army forces for a moment. But I want to give you a reason for why we need military forces in Alaska. I want to give you two reasons for that. And then I want to tie that to the economic opportunities as well. First of all, if you look at your map, um, most of the time you see a Mercator projection. And it always has Alaska and the Arctic up in the left-hand corner. What you've got in front of you is a polar projection, which I uh, contend is a more accurate look at the globe. And the point I want to make there is, for our forces that we have in Alaska, that's the most, as Billy Mitchell said to the Congress in 1935, the most strategic location on Earth for aviation. Because uh, in eight and a half hours, by air, I can be within 90% of the industrialized world from Alaska. 
Uh, I could never get the Pentagon to understand when I was commander of Alaskan Command that my F-15s in Anchorage could be in the Balkans quicker than the same airplane on the east coast of the United States. And those airplanes can be in Korea in six hours. So if you have a small number of forces, you're much better off to put it in Alaska where they can go east, they can go west, wherever they're needed. Uh, FedEx and UPS understand this more than the Pentagon. Both have major hubs in Anchorage, Alaska because they can be anywhere in eight and a half hours in the northern hemisphere. Um, the Air Force sort of gets it. It's taken a while for us to do it. The Air Force has three wings of F-22s, the premier fighter that we've got. One of those three wings is in Anchorage. Uh, the Air Force has three bases for their AWACS airplanes, their radar control airplanes that we need in every combat operation. One of those three bases is Anchorage, Alaska. The Air Force has made the decision to put um, a wing of their newest fighter, the F-35, when it comes on board in Fairbanks for the same reason. It's got wonderful training opportunities and can go east or west. C-17s. Uh, only a handful of bases with C-17s, but one of them happens to be Elmendorf in Anchorage, Alaska. We've got tankers there. We've got C-130s there, all for the reason that they can go wherever needed on short notice. So from a power projection point of view, those are why you want to have forces in the Arctic. Let me go to the second reason. And this is something that uh, Amy Pope talked about. We all want a peaceful, and stable Arctic. But if you go back over the centuries, one of the most unstable things you can do is have a high number of forces on this side and a low number of forces on this side. And when you have the Russians talking about where we're going to put four more brigades into the Arctic, we're going to put a division in Chakotia. Um, we've got 41 icebreakers and we've just fielded our nuclear icebreaker. Now, I'm not criticizing the Russians for doing that. I applaud them for doing that. They're using vision, strategic vision. Um, some of the things they're doing are not uh, stable. For example, Iskander missiles, nuclear missiles, into Kaliningrad that threaten Arctic nations. Now, when you talk about a threat, and I'm not trying to build Russia as a threat here, but you have to look at two things, capability and intent. Capability is pretty easy to look at. You can count the number of brigades and the number of 16 air bases they're going to upgrade and the Iskander missiles. Intent, I'm not about to try to predict what the intent is, but intent can change overnight. And so you have to have the matching capability in order to have stability in the Arctic. While the Russians were putting four new brigades, the US only has two brigades in the Arctic. And because of budget pressures, the administration made a decision two years ago to take half of those out of the Arctic. Uh, when that got to our congressional delegation, quite frankly, did a good job, uh, spearheaded by Senator Sullivan on the Senate Armed Services Committee, when he started asking questions to Secretary Carter and to the new Army chief, does this make a lot of sense while the Russians are putting more that we're taking it out? And they were doing it for, for budgetary reasons um, they said, you know, on second thought, that's not a good idea. We're going to leave that brigade there. Um, but the, the budget pressures are always going to be there to do it, which brings me to my third point. Tom Barrett talked about the pipeline. When I was commander of Alaskan Command, we were shipping two, 
And if it goes much lower than that, it's going to shut down because you can't keep oil flowing at low temperatures at very low volume. We've got to put more oil into that pipeline. If that pipeline shuts down, the Alaska economy is going to really be in trouble. And all the Costco's, the Sam's Clubs, the Walmarts that are there today to keep the cost of living for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines under control, it's going to get very, very expensive. And the uh, cost of living, the COLA allowance is going to have to be there. It's going to be more budget pressures. So we've got to have the economic investment and the infrastructure back to the, the uh, leasing in the Chuxi Sea and the Beaufort Sea. We need to keep those options alive. So that's the end of my thing. I'll come back later on. Thank you, Joe. That's an important reminder of, about geography and proximity that we often underappreciate about the Arctic. Your, your map, I think, is pretty graphic oh, that's great. Um, about how it points out you know, how quickly one can get to Europe via uh, the East Coast. And then, of course, its proximity to important points in Asia. Right. Jim? Uh, and thank you, and uh, thanks to the Council for uh, putting this on. I think these kind of conversations and discussions with regard to what's clearly going to be probably for the next 10 to 20 years at least uh, one of the most talked about corners of the world, and those uh, corners of the world, or one of those corners of the world with extraordinary U.S. interests. Uh, I'd like to start to talk, or just to, to mention a context here, and if you, if you think of it in a historical fashion, uh, at the end of World War II, uh, when the, when the Undersecretary's Navy gave all those icebreakers to the Coast Guard to deal with uh, over the next 10 or 12 or 15 years, uh, the context about Alaska, about the Arctic, was only about two things. It was about access and it was about science. What is it that was going on in the, in the Arctic that, had, that made good sense for the U.S. interests with regard to uh, the science that we could learn from uh, the area, from the region, and what kind of issues were there uh, attended to access in the event that we found a, uh, a reason to get to the Arctic? Could we, in fact, do that uh, in the uh, greater interest of, uh, of U.S. Uh, security, core U.S. interests, national security interests? So as the Undersecretary has mentioned, the same, uh, the same sense is in 2016 as it was in 1945. We're very much interested in the Arctic with regard to access and with regard to science. Science now has morphed its way towards the discussion the first panel was all about with regard to energy challenges, with regard to climate control and all such things. I can go back to that in just a moment. Uh, but with regard to access, I don't think the, the real issues have changed very much. The capability to do it well uh, may be a question that it's clearly on the table given uh, the notion with regard to uh, 40 uh, Russian icebreakers as opposed to uh, two heavy breakers in the U.S., one of which truly has become a parts bin for the other one because uh, it's 60 years old. Uh, and then, of course, the Coast Guard Cutter Healy, which is our scientific icebreaker, which addresses primarily the, uh, the second notion of, uh, uh, of, uh, of science as opposed to, uh, to access. So the core U.S. interest in the maritime world of sea and air deployment for strategic lift and deterrence or whatever might be our responsibilities to, uh, to deal with that, the notion of maritime presence in what is clearly emerging as the third ocean, if you will, with regard to what surrounds our country and dealing with that as constructively as uh, she suggested that the Navy is going to be doing there, everything they do everywhere else in the world. 
And that's exactly the right uh, notion to have. But the challenges in Alaska are very real, as you suggest. The notion of freedom of navigation and freedom of overflight uh, are the same kind of issues that we uh, employ uh, uh, defense interests in and defense resources to around the world. We're certainly wanting to hold on to those as core interests to be able to do the same thing in, uh, in the Arctic as well. And even to the point of suggesting that uh, preventing terrorist threats from yet a different uh, corner of the world, whatever might be mounted uh, from, Arctic, uh, from the Arctic with regard to our own interests here in the United States and the coastal United States, or in uh, the, the lower 48, are, are very real issues for us to have on the table as well. So if you're a strategic planner, which I think the essence of what it is that we want to always get to, uh, and, and it's why the Atlantic Council should host these conversations and probe uh, all of us to be continuing to think about such things, there's sort of string that goes along with the notion of strategic planning. There's data elements that if you refine them carefully enough, they become information. And if you take information and refine it carefully enough, it becomes knowledge. And if you take that knowledge, those knowledge elements and refine it well enough, it becomes strategy. And strategy leads to the tactics that we should all be employing with regard to those things that are of interest to us, uh, whether they're national interests at the, at the Washington, D.C., uh, U.S. level, or whether they are on service interests uh, to any of the armed services uh, that we discuss all the time. So if you go back to the data piece at the very beginning and think about just plain facts, uh, I'll provide you a, just a handful of facts that will provoke you to be very interested in what it is that we're talking about with regard to the Arctic. The sea ice is melting at twice the normal rate. The polar ice cap is 25% smaller than it was in 1978. This notion of a third ocean border uh, has the potential to invite rogue actors to uh, take advantage of that third ocean as they have tried to take advantage of uh, the uh, Atlantic and the Pacific, and of course, uh, in, including the Caribbean. Uh, the, the simple fact that commercial is invest, investment is actually happening in the Arctic and needs to be recognized for the value that it represents eventually so as to have that balance between government, public, and commercial, private investment push the infrastructure investments necessary to take advantage of what we were talking about with the first panel, that is taking advantage of all that the, uh, the region offers with regard to uh, uh, resources and other capability. This notion, as Ian introduced the panel with regard to the, the, uh, uh, the Northwest, uh, the infamous Northwest Passage being sought for a couple of hundred years and now probably realized within the next 10, uh, or, or even the Northeast uh, uh, passage uh, is facts that are on the table that will dramatically reduce transit times for an awful lot of the commercial trade routes that we understand and ply the world's oceans today. There has probably been a 300% increase in human activity in the Arctic over the last 10 years. Think about that with some of the things we heard about from the panel this morning thinking all the way back to a couple of hundred years ago, uh, to have that kind of an increase in just the last decade is, uh, is pretty extraordinary. And as also we heard this morning, uh, I'm sorry, this afternoon in the first panel, 13% of the world's undiscovered oil is in Alaska, uh, is in the Arctic. 23% of the world's undiscovered gas is in the Arctic. A trillion dollars potentially worth of seabed minerals uh, are in the ocean floor of this area that we're talking about today. Those 
are the facts that provoke us to think more carefully about our game plan with regard to the Arctic. And sadly, uh, as the US ponders such things, others are acting. Uh, whether it is uh, the second thing that I'd like to talk to you about, which Amy introduced at our, uh, at, with her opening comments, that is the, uh, uh, the, the Law of the Sea Convention. I'll chat about that just for a second. Uh, but if you think about those others acting, Joe has mentioned and other panelists have mentioned already, uh, Russian claims to the North Pole uh, as an extension of the Lomonogov Ridge, uh, as an extension of, the, uh, of uh, Russia uh, in, into the Arctic. Uh, six new bases north of the Arctic Circle, 16 deep water ports, uh, 40 plus icebreakers, energy projects, 13 airfields. Somebody's, some people are acting while we are pondering what might be the right things to do. And also, as was mentioned this morning, even China, who now perceives themselves as a quote-unquote near-Arctic country, whatever that means, a near-Arctic state, but they are building new icebreakers. And the PLA, has, as has been mentioned just uh, even recently, when the president visited, uh, was sailing the Aleutians in the Bering Sea. The second thing that I'd like to talk about for a moment is this uh, UNCLOS, the United Nations Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, the facts associated with that, very straightforward. 167 countries have joined the convention, including Russia and China. And uh, those who are not members of the convention include North Korea, Iran, Syria, Libya, and the United States of America, a neighborhood that perhaps we have not normally found ourselves delighted to be part of. Uh, but that's the facts of the moment. And to whatever degree the Senate has over the course of uh, every, well, since 1982, when the convention was put into practice, uh, every chief of naval operations, every commandant of the Coast Guard, every, chief, uh, every, every secretary of, the, of defense, every secretary of state, every president uh, has supported the notion of the United States joining uh, and ratifying this particular convention. In the meantime, 30 years has gone by, 35 years has gone by, and to whatever degree all those member nations have been discussing things at the table, the United States has not even had a seat at that table to uh, participate in those discussions. There are enormous EEZ implications to that reality, including in the Arctic. And if, in fact, we have no seat at the table, if, if in fact, we have failed to ratify, I would offer that that is the first significant and major step on the diplomatic stage, on the international stage, that the US has said uh, we're, we're not going to participate in this. And it's sort of phase one of what could be on the table, even in the near-term near future, uh, the predecessor to subsequent steps where we would either take a step backward even further or stay and choose to participate in what might be going on in the Arctic region. The third thing I'd talk about uh, is sort of parallel to what the Undersecretary mentioned with regard to the Navy. And that is that the US Coast Guard has enormous equities in the maritime side of what we're doing in the Arctic. We have 11 legislatively mandated missions uh, that, we, uh, that we perform for our country everywhere else. And with regard to this third ocean border, whether it is about search and rescue, whether it is maritime law enforcement, whether it is uh, spill response to oil spills, uh, whether it's marine safety uh, validation of adequate facilities or licensing and certification of the mariners to supply those waters, whether it's aids to navigation, whether it's national security, all these are legislatively mandated missions that the U.S. Coast Guard performs for our country. 
and we will be making every effort to do those in the Arctic as well as we do them everywhere else in our, in our, in our service. So uh, the notion of icebreaking being one of those 11 uh, mandated missions is the one that's on the table almost immediately when you think about protecting our interests in the Arctic with regard to access. So my conclusion is uh, of the moment, we can firmly say that access and science remain legitimate issues of concern for our country, uh, that national security issues now are very real and getting more serious as days and weeks and months go by, and that we seem to be falling further behind with regard to our reference points in that array of work, and that we hamstring ourselves with our own decisions. And to uh, step back a, uh, a step further would, I think, put us in even uh, more jeopardy than is the case today. Other nations are proven their abilities to be very aggressive. The, re the resource exploitation is actually going to happen in the Arctic, whether it happens with, an, uh, with the U.S. as a participant, wherein, as someone has mentioned in our uh, panel earlier today, the technical expertise with regard to safety and, and response is very much uh, a peak of what the U.S. has the capability to do and do well. Uh, I have often said that in the aftermath of 9-11, a leadership trait or, or a leadership competency that uh, either nations project or individuals project is that of collaboration. And although it perhaps was less on the table in the days before 9-11, this new normal world that we're trying to understand and live in post 9-11 puts uh, an emphasis on collaboration as a skill. National collaboration is a skill that I know Bob is working on very, uh, very diligently in his work uh, from state, and it's one that I think all of us need to address and be part of uh, in, in this world of ours going forward. Thank you, Jim. You, you've underscored the pace of change over there. You've got some graphic detail about the force balance shifts that are occurring over there, particularly on the Russian side. And, Really appreciate the point you made about uh, UNCLOS, the UN Conventional Law of the Seas. It's, 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 from my perspective, it's long overdue to have it ratified. You've all talked about change. You've all touched on a changing security environment over there. And what I want to do, Janine, is turn to you first and have you look out three or four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And in light of leveraging your background at your, as, as a senior naval official, your background as a person who's worked on force posture issues, how do you see these changes affecting the requirements on, on the Navy? You, you mentioned um, operating uh, competencies, international partners, navigations. But maybe if you could give us a little bit of a sense. I mean, do we have the ships that we need to operate uh, under this changing, in, in this changing environment? I mean, this is a major. Uh, this isn't just not a lake that's being, this is a major sea that's opening up. There is a lot more military activity in there. There's 300 times percent more human activity over there. How is that stressing your force? Uh, is it creating demand? Should Congress now be thinking about additional platforms configured for that env operating environment, which you just described as being very unique? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, the, sh the short answer is that, um, like I said before, we are, we're a global Navy. Right, so we're going to have to balance where the biggest threats are and, and where we need to focus our energy. Um, when I think about the role of the Navy, like I said, um, we're going to do in the Arctic what we do everywhere else. It's a, it's a little bit more challenging of an environment. And one of the capabilities that we bring there that we already have are our submarines. And that's sort of our 
um, our, our qualitative edge up there already. Um, the Coast Guard has the ice-breaking mission by law, and we're going to support them on that. Um, the Congress is considering whether or not we should, you know, how they're going to fund this, but we will help them build it. We build ships. We build lots of them, and we build them well, so we'll be helping with that. But in terms of, you know, as the ice melts, um, then what kind of environment is it, right? And if it's happening as rapidly as we say, you know, I. We're, we're grappling with, do we need to fundamentally change the way we are, um, we're structured for an environment that's actually getting warmer, right, <laughs> over time? We have submarines already, we're, we're in the air, and we're focusing on operating in that, in that environment. So I think it's going to be a, a gradual, a gra gradual changes, mostly focused on competencies, operations, training, cooperation, doctrine, definitely leveraging our submarine fleet and our, and our aircraft. Let me just push you a little bit because, for example, in submarines, we clearly have, I think, more submarines than the Russians. But our submarines are globally deployed. They are. They've got to deal with our good right. friends in North Korea, China, yeah. uh, who knows what's going on in Africa and yes. such. The Russians, they have a, a smaller fleet, but a significant fleet, but one that operates pretty much in the yeah. Arctic and in, yeah. the, you know, yeah. in the local waters around them. Well, both, you know, different actors around the world are also starting to operate more globally outside their backyard. Um, but you're right, we, the United States and the United States Navy, operate globally. And that, that is one of our challenges, which is exactly why we're, um, you know, and the changing, the changing threats, environments that we've seen in a couple of years, definitely the changes in the way the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians, they've all been acting. Um, we're doing a whole fleet architecture review to examine that question exactly. I mean, I can't uh, predict how it's yeah. going to come out. <laughs> But it's a big world, and we, and we need lots of ships. I'm glad you're on it. Joe, let me turn to you, because you took the air and, air, air and land uh, perspective on, on the Arctic. And you spoke very forcefully about some potentially bad decisions the administrations, last administrations have made about the posture in the Arctic. I'd like to ask you two questions. What would you like to go back? What would you like to see in the Arctic in terms of our, our, our posture there? And then leveraging your hat as a former uh, SAC Yor, what role would you anticipate or should NATO be exploring to enhance and preserve the peace in the Arctic? Uh, two questions. Let me talk to the first one first. And, and I didn't mean to criticize the administration. It was budget pressures that drove a decision that probably was not the best decision. And to the credit of the administration, when brought up to them, Secretary Carter and the Army says, yeah, we kind of agree that was a bad decision. And they reversed it. But it's back to sequestration, which uh, we all know in this town is a problem. And if we don't get sequestration solved, the Army is not going to stop at 450,000 troops. They're going to be at 420,000 troops. Mm. And the pressure is going to be even stronger to draw down. So that's, that's a problem that's got to be fixed. Um, you know, I, I'm not trying to go back 20 years, but 20 years ago, when I was commander of Alaskan Command, we had a full Army division, the 6th Infantry Division in Alaska. We've got wonderful training opportunities, better training opportunities than anywhere in the United States for air and land. I mean, we've got the, the uh, J-Park, the, the range complex in the center of Alaska. You could put the whole state of Nevada in there, and you can fly supersonic over land, which you can't do anywhere in the lower 48 to do it. So it is a great training opportunity for both land, air, and naval air, by the way, and the Navy and the Marines come up and participate in their exercise, as well as do nations from around the world. So 
there is an awful lot of opportunity in Alaska. The only restraint on it are the budget constraints that we somehow have got to get through. Uh, with regard to NATO, you know, I look at the, out of the eight Arctic nations, you've got um, five of them are members of NATO. Two of them are very close partnership for peace, Finland and Sweden with NATO. Russia technically is a partnership for peace nation, but hasn't been very uh, constructive recently. So you've got, NATO has to look at that. Um, and I'm sure they are. And one of the things that's bringing attention to it, quite frankly, back again, the Iskander nuclear missiles putting into Kaliningrad. All of a sudden, that's got NATO's attention. They have to focus on the Arctic. I could see uh, Russia and NATO actually collaborating. And this is the one area we actually, one of the few areas we have, the West, between the West and Russia, where collaboration seems to be occurring. Respect for norms of behavior. The Arctic Council. Uh, Arctic Council collaboration um, with, with the Norwegians is, 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 is very good. So as we, as if one considers a more robust deterrent posture against Russia, the Arctic might be the, the hand of a partnership that we use for both. One, one thing I will add and to go along with that, in um, 1993, we had the first U.S.-Russia exercise since the breakup of the Soviet Union. It was called Arctic Sarex and I was privileged to lead that exercise to go to Tixi, Russia. And we took helicopters and C-5s and troops, and um, it was a very, very successful exercise. And it survived even in the bad days in when you and I were working together of the early 2000s because the Russian Far East liked it, and they didn't care any more what Moscow said than, than we did. <laughs> Uh, in recent times, I think it has come under some constraints and we're not doing it now. But the SARX, where we had Russia, the United States, and Canada all working in a collaborative uh, environment, assuming an airplane goes down somewhere in the Arctic, how are we going to get there and rescue the people? It was a very, very good exercise, and it, and it kept us talking. It was a confidence-building measure. And I had the opportunity to talk to the chief of the Russian military as we're going back and forth to do that. We need to be pushing on something like that again. Yeah, if I may, and there, there's, a, there's another forum back uh, to uh, the, the Northern Pacific Coast Guard Forum uh, is made up of uh, uh, the countries that have, a, have an interest in the maritime side of, uh, of a handful of what I'd call more benign mission focus areas, uh, whether it's search and rescue or law enforcement, fisheries enforcement, uh, spill response, those kind of things. Uh, that forum over the years has become uh, one of those opportunities where we talk with each other, the Russians and all. So, so that's made up now. Uh, Bob, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure you will when it's your turn on the, uh, on the stage. But it, the natural folks that you might imagine in the North Pacific Forum, it, it is Russia, it is the United States, it is Canada, it is uh, 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 originally South Korea and, uh, and Japan. Those countries all have a common forum in which they talk about and actually deal with those uh, mission area elements that are what I'll call on the lower end of the spectrum, but can easily become the basis on which you talk about other things as well. So wherever we are talking in a positive engagement with regard to these, uh, uh, these other folks, that's that collaboration thing I was mentioning just a moment ago. It is the skill of the 21st century if we are going to get anywhere. 
me, let me draw on you a little bit more based on the experience and particularly your points about the important missions the Coast Guard has. Mm -hmm. You really outlined a robust agenda there. Now we have the Arctic. Uh, it's changing. Uh, there's more access. There's more people, as you pointed, 300,000, 300% increase in the human activity and mm -hmm. such. Mm -hmm. More people exploring, using the transit routes mm -hmm. and such. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as necessitating a change in the roles and responsibilities that are distributed between the Navy and the Coast Guard? Uh, well, I think the partnership is, is exactly where, where that has to be. Uh, and it's the same partnership that we evoke around the world, wherever, uh, wherever those requirements are. I mean, I went to Vietnam as a patrol boat skipper because the Navy needed uh, a small-sized patrol boat to deal with Operation Market Time in 1967 and 1968, uh, 66, 67, 68, and on through the end of the war. Uh, and it became one of those moments where the Chief of Naval Operations looked to, this, to, to my service, the Coast Guard, called the Commandant and said, hey, we need A, B, and C, and can you provide? And we were able to provide. So that partnership, if you will, between the Maritime Services, including the Marine Corps, by the way, uh, is, is a, a storied uh, part of our legacy, frankly, as a maritime nation uh, that has allowed us to do really good things for a, a really long time. That's just going to be continued in the Arctic with the, with the new set of challenges that we're all describing today. And I continue to go back to this notion of the value of thinking about it with regard to a strategic game plan uh, that, that, that puts into context a variety of things that you might do and then allows you to, on a more informed basis, choose what you will do. Uh, so the strategy that then becomes the tactics to be employed is, uh, is based on that, that chain I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks where data becomes information, becomes knowledge, becomes strategy, becomes tactics, that, that notion. Uh, and to take on conversations like this which help us understand the data and the information pieces and translate them into uh, documents like the Coast Guard's issued Arctic strategy. Uh, and, and those of other uh, cabinet-level agencies as well. But no need to encourage Janine to include a real look at the roles and responsibilities that are distributed between the Coast Guard and the Navy. Well, I think there's a pretty good ongoing kind yeah. of uh, constancy of review on such <laughs> things all the time. Maritime strategy with all with Coast Absolutely. Guard, Navy, and, and, and Marine Corps. It's a lot more than it used to be. When the Maritime Domain Awareness Strategy was mm -hmm. put out, it was because the Navy and the Coast Guard and the Marine Corps sent yeah. people together to build that, mm -hmm. uh, that awareness strategy for the, for the country. So uh, I think ships. those working relationships are really as sound as they have ever been. Coast Guard needs more ships, though, yeah. Not a doubt, not a doubt <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> All right. We have about 10 minutes left, so I want to open it up. Um, what I'm asking is, is for questions or short questions or short comments, and I will we'll cut you off. Easy identify questions. yourself. Yeah, easy, easy questions. Easy questions. Be preferred yeah. for easy questions. Uh, identify yourself, your affiliation, and make your point of your question. Harlan. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Ian, you run a great panel. I assume you're the one who wrote the title. Um, it's interesting that this panel and the previous panel's first names were General, Admiral, or Undersecretary of the Navy. Now, I know that the next speaker is going to talk about the Department of State, but I wonder, to expand the aperture, what roles do you see the Department of State, Department of Interior, Department of Commerce, uh, Energy, in terms of making a stronger argument, because quite frankly, we're over-militarizing in, in terms of this panel. And so what do we do about the other aspects 
Jim Loy's comment about strategy is absolutely accurate. It needs to use a hackneyed phrase, a comprehensive approach. Okay. So how do we provide a comprehensive approach to the Arctic? Joe? Um, yeah, let me give a, a response. And, and I absolutely agree with you that we need more attention in this town from a lot of different agencies on the Arctic. Uh, and Admiral Papp has heard me complain about this before. I think it's an absolute tragedy that Singapore, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Singapore has more people devoted to the Arctic than the United States of America, State Department does. And I'm not criticizing Singapore, I think it's great. They're thinking ahead, shipping and all this kind of thing, but we have got to bring this up. Nobody in Washington, and I've dealt with this for most of my professional life, wants to think about the Arctic or Alaska. It's something you have to keep doing. I, I applaud the Atlantic Council for having this today because it's one of those ways that you try to keep this issue in front. And this is not peculiar to any administration. I mean, this is, everybody prefers to ignore it. It's up there in the upper left-hand corner somewhere and we don't have to worry about it. I would, I would just say uh, uh, that the structure of uh, policy development for our country is housed in the National Security Council and its associated principals level and deputies level and working groups that grapple with these things uh, and the opportunity in those working groups to have one that is focused on the Arctic and then inviting, if you will, or, or requiring the participation of the cabinet level agencies that you described just a moment ago. Uh, th the structure is already there organizationally for those kind of things to happen and to happen well. It all depends on the, uh, as Joe was just sort of hinting at very strongly, it all depends on whether or not as the agenda for the National Security Council in this case, or the Homeland Security Council as it used to, as it used to exist, uh, are, are they going to put the Arctic and allow it to rise to the top of one that gets a great amount of focus and you actually have to make, uh, you know, make reports and get, uh, get data on the table to actually act upon? Uh, so I, I, I think the organizational structure within how we grapple with such things, either in the executive branch and the National Security Council and the working groups there, or in the way we put together uh, the committee structures in Capitol Hill allows for those things to occur. It's the, it's the prioritization of getting them on the table and on the front burner that is, I think, the greater issue. Janine? I mean, I would just say that um, I, I'm not so sure we're militarizing the Arctic, unless you, what you mean is that mostly it's security people and government that are focused on the issue. I mean, I think you're right that um, maybe the National Security Council or Homeland Security isn't the the, the epicenter for this, but it is State Department and is diplomacy and is, you know, so Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think we would all, all those guys probably agree, agree with that. I'm going to use Monterey's prerogative just push back a little bit on Harlan. It makes a good point. The Arctic can't be addressed solely through a military lens. Absolutely. The concern that I have is that the last decade or so, we've largely looked at the, at the Arctic through everything but the military lens. And there are dynamics in play that we, we can get ahead of yeah. now that would resolve it could be the transformation of, right. of the region into a contested, a geopolitically contested domain. Uh, this gentleman right here, uh, Lauren, I'll get you next. Joel Coulter, DVA Consortium. Thank you, uh, Joe, for bringing up the word collaboration. I, I met Admiral Papp a couple of years ago and he said, we will collaborate with Russia. He said, I said, yes, sir, that's true. I saw 140 U.S. businesses in St. Petersburg a few months ago when Russia was talking about its smart community. They have a thing out in San Francisco, November 9th, where they could bring all these people. So 
the UK and Canada put these major UAS centers of excellence because all these countries come in to innovate. In fact, the whale's largest in the world. So I know I'm going to be up in Alaska a few weeks talking about unmanned systems because that's one of my backgrounds. And I look at Keplovic, and what a potential Keplovic could be because everybody wants to innovate. It's a way to bring everybody together in an HADR search and rescue environmental monitoring. Is there any consideration to seeing Keplovic as a center for the whole Arctic Council countries? I'm not on the Arctic Council. That's a, that's a good one for Admiral Pat. <laughs> Hold we'll, that question. <laughs> we'll save that for the next, uh, the next panel. I got Don. Thank you, Don Lauren. Um, I, I had to make that two-fingered intervention on Ian's question uh, or his pushback, and I pose as a question. Um, my comments were predominantly from a U.S. national security perspective earlier today, and we've talked about militarization and that. And my question is, what are we doing, if not internationally or then unilaterally, to keep the Arctic safe? Because I, I look at this great graphic from General Ralston, and uh, if it said UA Heavy 229 on it, this is wonderful. But I'd push that little uh, point of origination a little toward the accessible areas of the Arctic now. And now I'm thinking submarine-launched ballistic missile intercept curves, and I'm starting to get worried here. So the question is, uh, what's the United States' role in taking a lead in working with other Arctic and, quite honestly, non-Arctic nations to make this a safe and non-threatening region? If I could add to that, to that question, we talked a little bit about NATO before, but are there other institutions that ought to be ad addressing some of these security issues, like, for example, the Arctic Council, which really hasn't? Well, yeah, I, I don't know, again, about the Arctic Council and the degree to which they address security issues, but I would, I would contend that that's, that would be a first place for a multilateral conversation on things like this. But, you know, back at the ranch, it's NORAD, right? So NORTHCOM, NORAD, Canada, their mission is to keep an eye on that kind of a threat, exactly. And with respect to when I said that we've said UCOM and NORTHCOM, you all have the lead on, on, on making sure you um, analyze and determine whether or not we need to invest in other things, that's what NORAD is, is um, teed up to do. And I mean, I think, you know, the world is not necessarily a safe place. That's why we have militaries. <laughs> so we're going to have to keep, we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on it. But I think the first, who was it that said you need two things, capability and intent? Right. We yeah. have to focus on intent. People have capability. This is a dangerous world. We've got to continue to focus on the diplomatic pieces yeah. and also, you know, make sure that we're ready. One point I'd add to that. Um, this group is a different subset of the American public. You understand the Arctic. You've thought about this. I ask you this. How many, what percentage of the American public knows that our ground-based missile defense interceptors are located in Fort Greeley, Alaska. <laughs> you know, we've got a $150 billion investment of, inve of interceptors in the ground at Fort Greeley in order to intercept nuclear missiles in from Dallas. North Korea or from Iran, both. Uh, that's just something that's not on the American public's uh, mind. They sleep, safe at, they sleep safe at night. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've come to the near end of our uh, of our panel here, and what I'd like to do is give my, my colleagues uh, a chance, any final remarks they want to make, and I'm going to th throw a question that um, might be useful as we try to get people to focus time, attention, 
strategy and resources on, on the Arctic. Uh, for example, if you were in Janine's shoes and Janine, you're in your shoes, what is the contingency that keeps you up at night about the Arctic? Is it a, a geopolitical collision? Is it a cross-border environmental disaster? Is it another incident that rolls out of control as was described in the last panel about one nation not wanting a rescue to occur in the underterritorial waters? What, what would it be? I'll start with Jim. Well, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> Any of those things uh, you know, would, would provoke the, uh, you know, the, the serious concern and there would be lots of meetings in the, uh, in the sit room in the White House. Uh, so that's why, I, that's why my notion is to go back to this fact and data-based research attendant to inventorying those challenges as we understand them and making absolutely certain that we have run the gamut with regard to strategic thinking on it and produced as necessary the tactical plan on the shelf to deal. If we are waiting until it occurs, which is the essence of the question, uh, it's way too late for us to think through a, uh, a thoughtful response to, to, to the challenge that's on the table. Uh, so part of the value of strategic planning is that you sort of prophesy as to what those uh, incidents might be and think through the means by which you will uh, respond to them when they occur. Uh, and so my, my hoped for answer to your question is that we are pretty methodically doing that at state and DOD and, and inside the West Wing uh, with a view to understanding what we may be asked to take on as a nation and be, therefore be infinitely better prepared to actually do it if it occurs. Joe? What keeps me awake is, is a more subtle problem. If it weren't for the economic opportunities in the Arctic, we wouldn't be having this meeting here today. And if we somehow cut off those economic opportunities, people will slowly forget about the Arctic and you'll never have anybody think about it again. And all these bad things can happen. So I think it's going to be the tendency for us as a nation to be isolationist and ignore those things we don't understand about. And as the, the uh, economy comes down and the opportunities come down, then we'll forget about it. Janine, you have the last word. Well, from a security perspective, I worry about, um, you know, bad international behavior. I want people to cooperate. I want f freedom of navigation. I want that everywhere in the world. And um, I don't want to see the competition over resources and things in this region to start to get to a point where people are trying to block off other people's access. That's when the Navy will have to start to think, you know, we have to think about that. So that, that worries me. But the other flip side that also worries me is people overreacting. Here, here. So there's your conundrum. Janine, Joe, Jim, thank you very much. You've underscored why we have to introduce more uh, of a security dimension to our approaches to the Arctic. It's not the sole dimension, but it's certainly an important one. And Janine, you make a good point. It's a matter of balance and prudence. But we also have to be deliberate. So thank right. you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Good to see you. I am going to ask to come up and introduce our next speaker.
Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Berit Enge. I am the Washington correspondent for High North News, which is a web uh, newspaper covering the Arctic uh, with a headquarter in northern Norway, Buda. Uh, we publish in two world languages, English and Norwegian. And uh, in addition, we cooperate with a number of other publications on the uh, newly established website Arctic Now. So I invite all of you to visit. It's, there's no paywall, and uh, please, please visit us. It is a pleasure uh, to be able to be here to introduce the US Special Representative to the Arctic, Admiral Papp, a person I think most of you know quite well. He has had a uh, long and distinguished career in the Coast Guard, starting with his first tour, which I believe was to the Arctic. Uh, and ending uh, as the uh, Commandant of the Coast Guard until 2014. Listing all of his achievements would, of course, take too much time, uh, more than we have here. But for all of you who think that you have a sterling resume, let me just tell you that uh, when you look at the Admiral's Wikipedia bio resume, there is an entire page filled with awards and decorations. I thought that was quite amazing. He retired from the Coast Guard at the end of May 2014 for all of six weeks, I think, or thereabouts, and then was appointed by President Obama to serve as the President's Special Representative for the Arctic. Since then, he has traveled the world extensively. He has built strong international partnerships, and he has spearheaded the Obama administration's efforts to focus the world's attention of the developments in the high north. One of the advantages when you are asked to introduce somebody like this is that you have an excuse to uh, ask other people about that person. So I took that opportunity, and here are some of the things that I found. He has two granddaughters who, appropriately enough, uh, love the Disney movie Frozen. I hope that you have told them that uh, a happy ending does not mean the melting of the ice, necessarily. He went to the Coast Guard Academy and the Naval War College, and then he evened it out by attending a former, former women's university, where the student body still is about 70% female, I believe. And as a commandant, he made the first ever appointment of a woman to head the US Coast Guard Academy, and also the first such appointment of any US service academy. I also spoke with some uh, of his colleagues who see him at international conferences, uh, some of them my former colleagues from, from Norway. Um, they uh, indicated a slight frustration when I mentioned his name um, and said that usually these conferences start quite early uh, and when they stumble out of bed to look for their first cup of coffee, the person they meet is usually the admiral who has not only had breakfast, but has also been out for a two-hour run. He has also made uh, many trips within uh, this city, some of them to Capitol Hill. And uh, last year, I believe he uh, proved his uh, suitability for this appointment extremely well when there was a hearing in Congress scheduled on what became a very heavy snow day. I'm sure you'll remember we had quite a bit of those. Uh, nothing was open, offices was closed, um, the, the, the committee was there, but nobody expected the admiral to come, but he was there. Earned the respect of, uh, of his uh, colleagues on the Hill. 
Uh, as has been mentioned earlier here today, uh, he has recently made uh, a speech where he made some references to Star Trek. I believe that was in Reykjavik. And this was, I have to say, reported in High North News. This is about uh, using uh, such principles, similar principles, and finding solutions for the future. Today he's here to speak on what Arctic energy security means for American citizens. I don't know if he will have any Star Trek references for us, but we will be very eager to hear what he has to say either way. Please join me in welcoming Admiral Robert J. Papp. Thank you, Barrett. And thank you for bringing up all those things as well. <laughs> I don't talk about Frozen anymore. I got in trouble with the Walt Disney Company over that one. And Star Trek, I might talk about that. That's been brought up twice. But what I would just say on Star Trek, as I was trying to get something that would grab a large and diverse crowd, which we had in Reykjavik for the Arctic Circle Assembly, uh, about uh, well over 2,000 people in the audience, and, and particularly important, young people who we want to get interested and involved in Arctic activities. And uh, what I did was I went back. I was quoting from a, a story that happened in... Uh, in a uh, Canadian visit that I had, I was asked about, uh, are there enough icebreakers? Or is the United States going to build more icebreakers? And uh, after reflecting for a little bit and talking about what we were actually doing, I suggested that there were probably enough icebreakers in the world already. It's just that uh, they aren't very well distributed. And that uh, perhaps uh, if we looked at Star Trek as an example, where they have a united star fleet with an international crew working together, giving you diversity and cooperation and inclusiveness and other things, that was the point I was trying to make. So uh, it, it wasn't frivolous or anything, uh, but I, I wanted to, uh, to use that story. And uh, as I said, I'm not going back to Frozen ever again. But uh, this is the spot where the staff starts to get a little worried. Uh, I'm, I'm taking the uh, nicely prepared speech that's been vetted and approved and everything else. I'm going to set that aside because first and foremost, I, I noticed that the crowd is significantly thinner than it was when I first got here about on now almost five hours ago, I guess. And, uh, and you've heard a lot of policy issues and details and things from other people who have been up here already. So I thought perhaps what I might do is just talk a little bit about what's on my mind because I really want to get to your questions, which I think is the most important part. Because I could talk for hours about the Arctic and the things that I've learned, but I might not very well address your concerns. Uh, so uh, I'll just give you a little context here and then uh, try to get into your uh, Q&As. Uh, first of all, uh, Admiral Lauren mentioned that he always likes hearing maritime history from me, so I don't want to let him down. And uh, Mead Treadwell started out with uh, throwing a little history out there about some Navy ships that happened to be in Sitka uh, when the uh, territory was transferred from Russia to the United States. What I would say is the revenue cutter Lincoln was in Sitka uh, when the territory was transferred, uh, the Rev revenue cutter service being the predecessor of the United States Coast Guard. I'm not sure why the Navy ships were there, because they clearly didn't have a purpose. Uh, <laughs> The Cutter Lincoln was there because, and I'm going to tie this in now, because I'm, I'm a retired Coast Guard commandant, and I shouldn't be up here just talking about the Coast Guard. I am a diplomat now at the State Department. Well, the reason the Cutter was there was because it transported the State Department delegation that went to Sitka, Alaska, to uh, take possession of the, uh, the Russian territory. And uh, for 150 years, the United States Coast Guard has been there. In fact, um, most of that history, which is intertwined with the history of the state of Alaska 
the Coast Guard has been the major federal contributor in that state and continues to be today because the Coast Guard, as has been mentioned here, focuses on that broader definition of national security. Uh, we have the best Navy in the world. We have the best Army, Air Force, and Marines, uh, but they are trained and, and maintained and uh, resourced for a very specific mission, uh, national defense, which is part of our broader national strategy. Uh, you have all these other things, whether it's economic, energy, uh, food security, uh, you name it, which is a part of that broader strategy. And the Coast Guard uh, puts its imprint on most of it, and all of it comes to play in the Arctic. So uh, I told you I'd give you a little context here. I thought that uh, I'd try and tell you why I think this is important. Some observations that I've made uh, in my four years as commandant. Uh, where we were focused on the Arctic. My predecessors had been focused on the Arctic, but it was becoming real for me in that job because Shell was drilling up there. Uh, talk about access and, and energy security. We had uh, Nome uh, that uh, failed to get its last oil, oil uh, delivery of the season before Norton Sound froze in in 2011. Uh, we had to turn around the icebreaker Healy, which had been deployed for six months already, and keep them up there until we could find an ice-strengthened tanker which could carry the uh, fuel oil through 300 miles of track uh, through North Sound to get up there and uh, relieve Nome, Alaska, so they would have fuel to get them through the winter. Uh, that's assured access. It was the only icebreaker we had available for the United States. Uh, we've got to do better than that, and I think we're making strides there. But, but why is it so important? Well. You know, I've gotten into a Nordic feeling over the last couple of years, having dealt with the Nordic countries on the Arctic Council. So uh, my wife and I bought a cabin up in the mountains, and uh, we wanted to decorate it. And I thought, since we're near a ski slope, a Nordic theme would be great. We found a, an old pair of antique wooden skis in the attic, and we put that on a display, but it wasn't quite enough. So she went out on the search, and she called me up, and she said, I found a nice-looking uh, reproduction antique Nordic wooden sleigh. And I said, well, that's great. And I got home, and sure enough, it's beautiful. It's exactly the right thing for decorating our, our cabin. And I took the tag off. The tag says Nordic Lodge on it. And it says, cozy up to this gorgeous collection inspired by the Nordic countries. You'll find plenty of interesting pieces that are sure to delight as you accent your home. Made in China <laughs> by Silk Road Designs Incorporated. And uh, I think, you know, I'm stating the obvious. We know that a lot of the things we get are manufactured in China, uh, but we don't often think about how they get here. Well, it just so happened, almost at the same time that uh, I got that tag, I went into the Washington Post the next morning, and here's in the World section a great big article on the expanded Panama Canal. And as you look at the picture, I know you can't see it from there, but I'll describe it for you. You look on the bow of this container ship that's going through, it's the Costco Shipping Company, the state shipping company of China. And all those green containers on there say China Shipping. Okay, so what's the Panama Canal got to do with the Arctic? Well, Costco, working for the state, China, had been looking at how do we lower our shipping costs? 
they were delivering and they were building larger and larger container ships to go to places like Long Beach and Seattle to deliver containers that then had to be transported across the United States. Not only were those ports getting crowded, uh, it was getting very expensive, and because they had an almost monopoly on the West Coast, they could charge higher and higher rates. So China, being foresighted, started looking ahead. They started investing in Panama. And I can remember at the time, uh, there being a lot of people worried, why is China investing in Panama? And then they started investing in building uh, what are now called Neo-Panamax container ships. Uh, the, uh, to be accommodated by the new expanded Panama Canal. And they were ready to go. As soon as the canal opened up, uh, they were ready to go and start shipping through the Panama Canal to the east coast of the United States because it ended up being cheaper. In fact, what uh, I have learned is they have reduced the transshipment costs, normally if they were delivered on the west coast, from $2,000 per container to $600 uh, per container. When you look at the millions and millions of containers that are delivered to this country, that's a lot of money. And uh, they looked ahead. They were thinking strategically. They invested in Panama. They invested in these new ships that they were building and, uh, and now are, uh, are making use of, of this this uh, canal in order to add to their prosperity and to maintain their, their market share. Following that is a story about Costco announcing that uh, they're going to ship to Europe across the Arctic. And they've been experimenting with an ice-strengthened container ship and are now in the process of building larger container ships to take the route across the Arctic. Now, I've talked to a couple of uh, other container ship companies, uh, ones that I know had already said that they were not going to utilize the Arctic because uh, the unpredictability, the unreliability that they need for on-time delivery of containers. And when you really get into a deeper discussion, what you find out is that they are not investing in that right now because they've got to answer to shareholders on an annual basis. They've got to have a balance sheet each year. Costco, China, doesn't have to answer to shareholders. Therefore, they can think strategically, they can act strategically, and think out, not the, the undersecretary said, thinking three, four, five years into the future. The Asian countries think 10, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. And it's not because China's communicated that to me. I have done a lot of studying about China to see what they're doing because I need to understand why they're in the Arctic, why they're doing what they are. But what I get that from is talking to Singapore. Singapore has been brought up. Uh, Singapore has one of the largest delegations at every Arctic conference I go to uh, because they realize, they have come to the conclusion uh, that they are going to be bypassed in the future as having a strategic location along the Malacca Straits and the next Singapore could very well be Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, Joel asked about Keflavik. Yeah, Keflavik could become a container port someday, but uh, Singapore is there, and I have talked to them, and they are very open about what they're doing. They also show up in places like uh, Tromsø, Norway, as well. And even the little Faroe Islands uh, have been in to visit me because they see themselves in a strategic location uh, that potentially could open them up for, uh, for a uh, transshipment point in the North Atlantic sometime in the future as well. So these countries are thinking ahead, and, uh, and they are investing because they're being strategic in nature. We've mentioned uh, strategy a, a number of times here. But rather than it being a security conflict issue that uh, often gets portrayed in, in the press, I think it's a prosperity issue. 
China's interested in its long-term prosperity, being a major world power, uh, being an economic power, and uh, they're going, they're investing, yes, in Greenland, and in Iceland, in Canada, in, in Alaska, and other places, because that's what a great power does. And they may very well have their shipping fleets going over uh, through Arctic routes in the future. So, yes, they were probably trying to make a statement where the uh, PLA uh, N uh, sent some ships up there while our president was in Alaska. But also, they are doing what a, what a potential world power does and is uh, starting to do those things, whether it's investment, sending their ships out. Uh, everybody was suspicious about why Shui Long, their icebreaker, was in the Arctic for, for almost a decade. I, I really believe, and in talking to others, they were evaluating. They're looking at the weather patterns. They're doing the science in order to be, uh, make wise decisions on their investments in the future, and they've decided to go for it, and, uh, and I think that's why they're there. Russia, when you break through the rhetoric, uh, they are investing as well because they see the Northern Sea Route as being a money maker for them. Uh, we, yes, we have a dispute with them. They think it's internal waters. We believe it's uh, uh, an international strait, uh, and we have difficulty dealing with that because uh, we uh, are not signatories to the, uh, the Law of the Sea Convention. But having said that, uh, Canada believes the same thing as well, and the Northwest Passage they consider to be internal waters, and we'll have to negotiate uh, with both of them uh, some sometime in the future. But yes, uh, uh, Russia probably has military and security issues at play, but for the most part, what they are doing is they are making their airfields capable, they're having sensors, they're putting in communications, all things that I believe we should be doing along our north coast of Alaska to, to be prepared for the increase in human activity. That's maritime governance. That's being prepared for that broader range of security issues that, uh, that maritime nations uh, have responsibility for. Uh, the good news is, as Amy Pope said at the beginning of this session, uh, we're starting to get some traction. And, uh, and that is really part of the reason why when Secretary Kerry called me on the night of my retirement uh, and, uh, and said, you've been talking a lot about the Arctic, how would you like to do something about the Arctic? Uh, I, I jumped at the opportunity, first of all, because the Arctic Council is important and the work we're doing there is, uh, is extensive. And, uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, this leadership position that we've had with the Arctic Council will translate into some momentum to keep us going. But it's also allowed me to work with the Arctic Executive Steering Committee. And uh, Mark Brzezinski and Amy Pope and John Holdren have done a great job over there and have started to raise the visibility on many of these Arctic infrastructure issues that we, that we need to deal with. Uh, as I said, I want to get into your Q&A, so I'm just going to final, uh, uh, say one final thing. Uh, I get accused of sea stories all the time. I told you a mountain story already about the cabin. Uh, the one sea story I'll tell you is uh, my first captain on my first ship in Alaska, uh, there were a couple things he gave me to read when I started breaking in as a deck watch officer. One of them was a, an investigation of uh, uh, Halsey's third fleet operating off the Philippines in World War II. Uh, they were so focused on what was going on in terms of combat operations that they failed to take heed of the signs of the weather. They got caught in a typhoon. Uh, it was one of the most uh, disastrous uh, fleet events in the entire World War II. Uh, hundreds of aircraft, 800 sailors, uh, three ships lost, and, and a lot of damage to the others. And uh, at the end, 
Admiral Nimitz personally wrote the letter that uh, accompanied the investigation. And what my commanding officer was doing is he wanted to instill in his deck watch officers foresightedness, keeping an eye on the weather, et cetera. And in it, the, the line that gets quoted all the time is, Nimitz writes, the time for taking all measures for a ship's safety is while still able to do so. Nothing's more dangerous than for a seaman to be grudging and taking precautions lest they turn out to have been unnecessary. Safety at sea for a thousand years has depended on exactly the opposite philosophy. And what I would say is, most of what I learned as a sailor is applicable to life as well. And the signs are certainly there, and I would make the case that we are behind in terms of taking precautions and being prepared in the Arctic, and we need to start moving out. Uh, right now, we've got some good signs. Our president has been very interested, but uh, we've got a change of administration coming up. That will be our challenge is to keep the momentum going and um, make sure that these, uh, these accomplishments that we've made so far will continue on into the next administration. With that, I'm really looking forward to your questions, and uh, all of you, thank you for hanging around to the end here. Okay. Thank you very much. I have a couple of questions to start us off, and then I think there's room for a couple of questions also from the audience. I wanted to start at the, um, uh, the issue, the title here, uh, what does Arctic energy security mean for American citizens? And also um, bring up what I hear from uh, our Alaskan colleagues. Uh, the, the view from Alaska and the view from, from Washington sometimes seems a little bit different. In Alaska, obviously, there's great uh, focus on uh, continued oil and gas development uh, and, uh, and development uh, which has, has brought uh, many good things to Alaska and that they hope to continue as well. Um, whereas in, from Washington and of course from much of the rest of the world, the focus has been on the environmental issues and climate change. Uh, we've had the Paris Agreement, uh, there's been great attention uh, to the environmental issues in the Arctic, not least uh, due to the efforts of President Obama. Mm -hmm. How do you square those needs? Well, I think uh, Admiral Lauren um, made one of the best statements I heard, or at least it, it plays uh, into my philosophy and what I've been talking about over the last couple of years, uh, both as Commandant and in the current job, is uh, we need to have the infrastructure. Whether you're talking about energy security or any other form of security in the Arctic, you need to have the infrastructure in place. Uh, the uh, Right now, we don't have a, a forward operating base, a deep water port up there. Uh, there's, there's no fiber optic cable for, uh, for communications uh, up in the, the area right now. Uh, airfields could, uh, could use expansion and, uh, and increased capabilities for servicing aircraft. There's no, the, the nearest Coast Guard air station is 800 miles away. So uh, I know the Alaskans were very disappointed, and, and Mead Treadwell mentioned uh, when uh, Shell made the announcement that they were leaving. I, I was actually up there for the Arctic Energy Summit being held in Fairbanks. Uh, and at midnight uh, before the, the summit, uh, the announcement was made. And the, uh, the moderator on the first session actually called for a moment of silence. I mean, that, that's how much the impact was. We looked at Shell 
And in fact, uh, the Coast Guard used Shell as an example of why we need to, to move ahead in terms of having proper infrastructure in Alaska uh, to be ready to respond. I, I would say, for me, those concerns have not gone away. Uh, as, once again, as Mead said earlier, uh, any oil spill is bad, whether it's from drilling or whether it's a ship collision. And uh, we still have a significant increase in traffic going through the Bering Strait. Uh, other countries on the other side of the Arctic where potential sea routes are coming are making preparations and, uh, and, and vying for uh, strategic locations. What I know is that every, every possible sea route that you have comes back to one location, and that's the Bering Strait between Russia and the United States. And uh, what are we doing to be prepared for that? And uh, I think we've got a long ways to go, whether it's, uh, as I said, a deep water port, Ford operating base, and assured access, having icebreakers that can get in at any time of the year. We've just had a look at a map uh, of the Arctic in relation to the rest of the world. Uh, in the United States, I believe uh, something like 99.8% of the population does not live in the Arctic, in, in Alaska. Uh, how do you get the rest of the US to care about the Arctic? That, that's been the big challenge. When I started out, once again, both as Commandant when we were working the Arctic strategy and in this job, uh, I kept asking the question, what is the national imperative? Uh, when you look at investment in Alaska, uh, the distant early warning system in the late 50s, which was a huge task taken on by the United States and Canada, uh, the, uh, the Alaska pipeline, uh, the Alaska-Canada uh, highway, uh, and other issues were always driven by security concerns, uh, whether it was the Cold War, uh, the, uh, uh, the oil embargo, which uh, really got it going in terms of uh, doing the pipeline. Uh, I was hard pressed to come up with something that would have uh, as much significance to try and, and gain initiative and, and grab the attention of the American people. Uh, I thought uh, shell drilling uh, in, the, in the Arctic might uh, uh, persuade people because we had just come off Deepwater Horizon and uh, the potential for oil spills was fresh in everybody's mind and uh, would we be prepared for an accident in the Arctic. But that, uh, we have sh short attention spans and that moved by uh, rather quickly and then when shell pulled out that uh, uh, dropped that uh, level of focus as well. But uh, I, I started realizing uh, just before the Glacier Conference and then with the president coming up to Alaska, uh, really what I view now as the national imperative is climate change. Uh, I think it was General Ralston who mentioned that uh, we wouldn't be uh, talking about this if it wasn't for the resources, the economic activity and everything. But the reason we're talking about the potential for economic activity is because of the climate change and, and what it's brought uh, to us. Uh, I have to admit that when I, when I took on this job, I, I, was really, I was really motivated by a lot of parochial reasons. Uh, uh, I had looked at maritime safety and security issues. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, economic and living conditions issues that we put into our chairmanship program. And then, okay, I, I listened to the climate change people in the State Department. We added a, a block of uh, climate change issues in our chairmanship program as well. But as I've had the chance to travel around and talk to an awful lot of scientists, I've visited ice centers uh, uh, in, in a lot of countries, uh, I, I've become passionate about this. And I think the president, in fact, handed us what the national imperative is, that uh, 
Okay, it's, it's a broad range of things. Uh, climate change and the ice receding is opening up new economic opportunities that we need to be prepared for. Uh, but we also, uh, we're getting this, uh, these new sea routes that people have been looking, at for looking for for 500 years, but now we're getting it for all the wrong reasons. Those things that prevented them from getting those sea routes is, is, uh, is going away. And uh, with the commensurate impact on the, on the, the climate across the globe. And uh, the, the things that I've learned over the last couple of years have scared me. Uh, yet I still retain optimism that we can do something about it as well. And uh, I think the, uh, uh, the, uh, the agreements in Paris uh, and other things that we will take on in the future uh, will help to mitigate things. But we need to, I, I would say it's like, uh, it's like everything else we've done. We're behind the power curve right now. We've got to move out smartly on this. And of all the things uh, you and uh, the Obama administration has done, and you've obviously been very active over the last uh, few years, which accomplishments do you consider most important to ensure that the work of this administration cannot be reversed? Uh, I am very hopeful that the executive order uh, that created the Arctic Executive Steering Committee uh, will be sustained. Because I think what we lacked and what I saw as Commandant of the Coast Guard was a lack of uh, consensus and people working together. Uh, when the Arctic strategy, when the national strategy for the Arctic that was signed by the President uh, was issued, uh, there was an uh, uh, implementation plan that was developed in accordance with it. And that implementation plan, I, my recollection is right, it was about 22 different agencies across the government that had some touch on the Arctic or had some projects uh, of interest for the Arctic. And where do you set priorities? When you've got 22 different agencies across various uh, cabinet uh, departments, uh, <laughs> it's hard to get voluntary compliance across all them, particularly in a, in a time when the budget's not growing. And anything that you do in the Arctic by, uh, by nature is a new start. And there aren't very many new starts going on in the federal budget unless it displaces something else. So the executive order which created the Arctic Executive Steering Committee brought everybody together. Uh, and then we started the process of setting priorities. Uh, what you saw when the president went to Alaska was a result of that. He, uh, we came up with a list of things that uh, would have the most impact, icebreakers amongst them, uh, but also uh, 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 coastal restoration uh, money, uh, money for clean energy. Uh, we need more. But it's a, it's a good start, and I, I hope that we keep this uh, body together so that we can continue the good work that has been started. Thank you. I think we have time for a couple of short questions. I think that uh, gentleman over there raised his there. hand right away okay. when we came over here. So, Hi. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm a student at, the, at Johns Hopkins University, a graduate student. And we've been studying a lot about conflict management and conflict resolution. And with the high degree of cooperation that the Arctic nations have uh, exhibited in conflicts and issues that have arisen in the Arctic region, um, with more issues and tensions rising in the Arctic, do you feel that the Arctic Council is the proper forum to address those issues? Or do you think that as the United States transitions away from its chairmanship, there are going to be other avenues or forums or, um, uh, I guess, meetings that would uh, help reduce tensions? Well, I think the Arctic Council is, is a good start 
because it does have the eight Arctic countries in there. Uh, we have the observer states, those people that are, are interested in, in the Arctic as well. Uh, China being uh, probably the most notable of, of the countries, but Singapore is in there and others. And uh, importantly beyond that are the what we call the permanent participants, the uh, groups that represent the indigenous peoples of the North, which uh, who never get enough of a voice. Uh, I, I would have to say that, uh, and I'm not, uh, this is not just me, uh, Admiral Barrett, wa uh, who was up here, who lives in Alaska and is very sensitive to these things, uh, remarked as we looked across the panels today, there's an awful lot of people that look like us up here, uh, older white guys that have been on the, uh, uh, on the panels. Uh, it's, it, it would have been nice to get the vantage point of uh, some of the Alaska natives as well. Uh, in fact, that was the first place I went when I took the new job, as I went up and, start, and, and did listening sessions with, the, uh, with the, uh, uh, all the uh, constituencies up in Alaska. But uh, the Arctic Council is limited in what it can do because uh, everything that's done within the council is done by consensus. Uh, the, uh, 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 the Ottawa Declaration, which created it, specifically said that it would be focused on environmental protection and sustainable development. Uh, defense issues are specifically uh, uh, prohibited from uh, being discussed in there. Someone asked that question earlier, which is understandable when you have uh, uh, five NATO countries, two that are closely aligned with NATO, and one who NATO is sort of organized to contain. Uh, so, uh, so it would be very difficult to do uh, defense issues. But having said that, everything's done by consensus, and, and it causes us to work very hard uh, it was one of the hardest jobs I've done is to go to seven other countries and sell our program. But what I would say is Russia, uh, when I went there, gave me the most detailed, uh, uh, concrete, uh, critical evaluation of our program uh, with, uh, with areas that we could improve our program. They, they accepted everything we had in our chairmanship program and has been perhaps our best partner on the Arctic Council uh, in order to move our chairmanship program along. And I thought that, uh, you know, here I am, they asked me to take this job. Uh, it's, a, it's a group that uh, has to get things done by consensus, and uh, here I have one of our countries which we just slapped sanctions on just before I got the job. But uh, it's, uh, we, we've been able to work through that. The other thing I would say is thank you for being here. Uh, I, I meant to mention this in my opening remarks, but I was getting a little bit long there. Uh, I think one of the most important things that we've done uh, in our Arctic Council chairmanship, and it goes back to my training as a sailor and as a ship captain, is you always look to the next watch. You've got to take time out of your schedule to train the young people who are going to take your place in the future. So I appreciate you being here, but it also coincides with, uh, we, we, this is Arctic Fulbright Week here uh, in, in town. Uh, we, uh, uh, we have sponsored uh, 17 Arctic Fulbright scholarships uh, to work on Arctic issues, and uh, I'm going to spend my entire morning tomorrow listening to their proposals from the students. And the other thing that we have, which uh, is even another step further removed, is we have uh, 22 Arctic youth ambassadors uh, who we selected, mostly high school or young college students uh, that have been traveling around from Alaska and uh, telling their story, and we hope that they will be policy people in the future as well, and they are in town uh, to spend time with us during the Fulbright uh, session and, uh, and hopefully prepare our leaders of the future. We had one more question here. Can we do that last one? Hi, I'm Gweta Mazzetti. I uh, run task forces on energy security at DOD. Last one, 
I co-chaired um, was the CNO's executive panel on energy security, and before that, I co-chaired the Defense Science Board Energy Security Task Force. So I think a lot about these kinds of things. So uh, one fundamental easy, I have two questions, and the, the easy question is fundamentally when you consider climate change, and I'm a big on climate mitigation, um, is the oil, do we know whether the petroleum there is cleaner than Canadian tar sands, Middle Eastern oil, what's being extracted now, coal, has anybody done that analysis and sort of the well-to-wheels analysis of whether it would be, you know, if you diversify the supply off of the Middle East, because 77% of the crude that leaves the Straits of Hormuz goes to the Western Pacific to our allies there and nobody has any indigenous oil. So it seems to me that if we haven't done the analysis about is it cleaner and that whole comprehensive analysis, and then how does it either weaken or strengthen uh, the Middle East, the Russian supply of Europe, because it seems to me that Europe could get their own supply without having to get it through Russia. They don't have any indigenous crude. And what about those little Southeast Asian countries that Singapore has nothing? Um, you know, although they may, as, as someone pointed out, become highly irrelevant in this equation because they don't have many resources of any kind and they're just sort of a transit. Anyway, has anybody done the geopolitical analysis on that as to, to in order to position the United States to try to figure out how it would serve and how we best leverage it to serve our other international objectives? Yeah, that, that is a very complex and detailed question, yeah. which I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, and, and I certainly don't have any answers in terms of which, uh, which source is cleaner or not. Uh, and I've sort of skirted the issue of uh, our energy, our oil. <clears throat> I, I would say I personally agree with all our Alaskan friends who have been here. Uh, we have to maintain our options. And, and I think that uh, somehow encouraging further development is, is important. Uh, simply because uh, we're going to be dependent upon uh, petroleum and gas uh, for a long time. Uh, we've made great strides in terms of China uh, starting to convert from coal. In fact, one of the reasons, yes, they're building ice strengthened container ships, but they're also building ice strengthened LNG tankers as well and working and investing in the Yamal project in Russia because they got to fuel their industry. And uh, whether they get it from the Norwegians in the Barents Sea or get it from uh, the Yamal project, uh, they're focusing on, on their needs for the future, and, uh, and they're converting to cleaner fuels, which is very important to the uh, great strides that, uh, that were, were made in Paris as well. So uh, I, I don't know uh, to, to uh, uh, the bulkier question there, but, uh, but uh, and there was one, oh, and Singapore. They, they, I, I talk about Singapore a lot, and I didn't want to burden everybody with my, uh, my entire Singapore story, but you know, they are intent on not becoming irrelevant. And that is why they are in places like uh, Reykjavik and in, uh, in Tromso because, and, and I've spoken to him. I, uh, the minister that I talk to regularly is very candid with me. And uh, he said they, they understand fully, but they have expertise in port management. They can build container cranes. Uh, and what they're doing is thinking 20, 30, 40 years in advance. They'll go back if they can make business agreements with Iceland or Norway or other places. They'll go back. They'll retool their industries. They'll revise their curriculums in their schools uh, because they intend to remain prosperous. And whether they get bypassed or not uh, is, uh, is irrelevant to them because they are going to make sure that they uh, maintain some form of com competitive advantage across the rest of the world. 
Isn't it great to be in a democracy? Yeah. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> and to answer, the, uh, Joel, I think, asked a question about uh, Keflavik. Uh, uh, the, the former president of, uh, of, of Iceland, uh, I think, would have the answer for you. Uh, he would like to see something return to Keflavik. And, uh, and Admiral Loy, uh, we have actually, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't talk to you about this, but uh, we've gone beyond the North Pacific Coast Guard Forum. We now have an Arctic Coast Guard Forum uh, that, was, that uh, my, my uh, successor, uh, uh, signed up all eight countries, and in fact, we had a search and rescue exercise, which I think is one of the important accomplishments of, of our tenure, is getting the eight countries working together. Uh, we had a search and rescue exercise uh, up in Anchorage and uh, Kotzebue and Nome uh, this, uh, this past summer, where uh, seven of the eight countries together, but we had uh, ten representatives from the Russian border uh, agency that were there as observers and taking part in the exercise, and it keeps us working together face-to-face -to, -face, uh, to try and make sure that we're prepared for the future. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much to Admiral Papp. Thank you to all the other speakers. Thank you to the Arctic Energy Center, and of course, thank you very much to the Atlantic Council for keeping these issues on the agenda. Thank you.